Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning. If you're watching live right now or you're streaming this later in the week or you're watching this podcast or listening to this podcast months or years later, no matter who you are, no matter where you come from in the world, you are most welcome at this very moment. A few weeks ago was uh, Halloween in North America. And uh, of course, it was a very different experience uh, for people because of COVID. And anyway, we got my kids a little candy and moved on. Anyway, my son came to me. My son's nine, by the way. His name is Noah. And he came and said, look, Dad, uh, I'm not going to have a lot of candy. So I asked him, well, how much candy have you had? He said, Dad, I promise. He looked me right in the eyes. I promise I have only had six pieces of candy. I said, oh, a little too much for my liking, but thanks for your honesty. So I get him to bed, and my wife and I, of course, get the girls to bed. We're finally in bed. You know, we enter into sort of REM sleep somewhere between 12.30 and 2 o'clock in the morning. We're deep in sleep. And suddenly in my room, I'm stirred awake. It sounded like rushing water at the beginning, and I couldn't understand. And then when I fully understood what was going on, it was too late. My son had half sleepwalked into our bedroom and projectile vomited onto our bed and all over our rugs. Suddenly, I'm banging my wife, wake up, and the smell, I won't eat, no comment, you all can imagine. Some of you are already turning off this right now because you didn't want to hear the story, and so we get him cleaned up, and then we begin the, uh-oh, and he had pizza that night too, just to make things more wonderful. And so we spent the hour and a half somewhere between 1.30 and 2.30 or 3 or something, I can't remember, scooping and wiping and disinfecting and oh my goodness. And we have a little vacuum thing that takes stains of the carpet. And we just were putting everything, we're arguing with each other because we're exhausted. So halfway through this chaos and smell and grossness on a level, I just, anyway, you all know what I'm saying. I walk into my son's room and he's sitting in his bed smiling. I'm like, how are you? He says, I'm great. Oh, Aren't you great? Isn't that nice for you? Why are you great? Oh, I just feel great. Sure you do. Anyway, he goes to sleep. Joe and I stop arguing-ish. We clean up as much as we can. The smell is out. The windows are open. And we finally crash and go to bed. The next day, we do round two of cleaning and we get everything out. Everything's okay. That night, my daughter, she's 13, coming this week, marches up and I hear her yelling at my son. And they fight all the time. So I'm like, would you just lay off your brother? You're being way too hard. She's like, no, I know I'm right this time. I'm like, what is going on? She said, the proof is in the bathroom, dad. The proof. I'm like, what proof? What do you have? She said, I know why he vomited. I know. She said, you go into the bathroom and you look underneath our counter and you will see. So I said, well, just get out of my way. I think you're being too aggressive. I get into the bathroom. I look under and there under the counter is 25 wrappers of candy and chips that my son, who had looked me in the eye and said, only six, had eaten in secret and hidden. Well, no, and I had another chat, and I'll leave it at that. You're like, John, why are you talking about vomiting? Here's why. We're nearing the end in 2 Timothy, and Paul, as we've discovered over the last two weeks, has just outlined especially last week, how the world is going to be dark and gross. And we're going to, as Christians, have to live through that period that's going to get darker and more vomitous. And actually, we're going to have to live with other people's decisions and we're just going to have to persevere through. There's a better thing on the other end. There's a clean carpet and a great new bed, but you got to walk through the middle. And he says, this is just reality. This is what Paul was saying. Timothy, we're at a crossroads 
We're at a fork in the road. The world and false teachers, our friends and family, are going to walk down one way, and you and I in the Christian church has to walk down the harder road, the less travel road. We need to endure and persevere and walk towards the greater destination while we walk through the middle of ever-growing, smelly darkness. He says, look, I told you what the world is going to look like. I gave you 19 signs, 19 descriptions. We've been living in the last days since Jesus' birth and his ministry and his life and his death and his resurrection and the giving of the Holy Spirit. And, and Timothy, in a pretty strong way, I've, I've outlined what is total depravity that every human being, no matter their culture or gender, is affected by sin and affects all of us. And, and Timothy, you know you've lived through the damage of what false teachers have done, what they teach, how they're living So now I need to talk to you. You, Timothy, need to counter this, teach against this. You need to literally live the opposite of this. So here's where we dive in. If you've got a Bible physically or on a device, would you turn to 2 Timothy 3.10? And and by the way, if you don't own a Bible, it's all good. It's just going to appear beside me as I preach. 2 Timothy 3.10. You, however, in response to all of that, Timothy, listen, you know all about my teaching and my way of life and my purpose and my faith and my patience and my love and my endurance. Now now watch this. This is important. Paul moves the conversation from darkness and total depravity and back to holiness, truth, and love. But notice where Paul starts because it matters. Notice that Paul turns the conversation. When it turns back to goodness, he turns to teaching. And again, let's ask, why is teaching the very first thing that Paul mentions in this growing dark moment? Because Christian teaching is the rudder for the ship. It's the moral compass for the church. It's the fence around the farm. It's the lamp to our feet. It's the map to get us home. Let me put it this way. As Christians, we are people that do not worship the book, the Bible, but we are people of the Bible. 100% of the time. Let me say this again. As Christians, we are people who do not worship the book, but we are people of this book. This has been repeated again and again in the flow of Scripture. Jesus' half-brother Jude put this in Jude 20. But you, my dear friends, build yourself up. First thing he mentions, in the most holy faith. And then he says, on pray in the Holy Spirit. Now notice, he didn't say build yourself up in the messages or the holy faith is, he said, One faith, one message. There's only one unique message that has divine transformational power to change a human heart. It's been handed out from prophet and apostle. So again, where is the holy faith passed down? Where is Jesus's teaching found? Where are Jesus's unique claims about his identity found? Where are all of God's stories and thoughts and revelations and commands and promises found? Where is all the early church's teaching found? In the Bible, in the scriptures. In the written word of God. Just like Paul, Jude says, study God's word. It's the center for being built up. It's where we find and know and and are called to look like God and be like him. It's where our Christian identity is. This has been the pattern since the beginning. The very first description, the blueprint, the DNA of the very first early church, Acts 2.42, it says this, and they devoted themselves, very first description, to the apostles' teaching. So let me read this verse again, 2 Timothy 3.10. You, however, know all about my teaching. Start with teaching. But then he says, way of life, purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance. Now, way of life means imitate me. I mean, he boldly said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, follow my example as I follow the example of Jesus. 
But then he says, you also know, Timothy, about my purpose. Now, by the way, I learned stuff this week I never knew. If you've been a Christian for years, I'd sit down and listen to this. And if you're not, this is still going to be intriguing. In the original language, purpose means to set something in front of or present something. Now, I think most of us read this and go, yeah, yeah, I get this. Paul, you're special. Yes, you've got a unique calling. Jesus met you personally. You're an apostle. Yeah, you've got purpose. No, no. We miss this in English. An original Jewish reader reading this, this would send up a huge flare. This would almost like scream off the page. See, this word purpose or setting out or setting in front of was the same idea or word used in the Jewish tabernacle and later in the Jewish temple when priests every seven days would place bread in front of God. It comes from Leviticus 5.8 as one example. The bread is to be set out before the Lord regularly, Sabbath after Sabbath, on the behalf of the Israelites as a lasting covenant. Now, this was called the show bread or the bread of presence. It was made up of 12 loaves and represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And it was presented and lived, ready, in the presence of God. So Paul, speaking to Timothy about living through vomitous darkness, says, by the way, watch this. I live my life literally, not metaphorically, in the presence of God. My life is worship before God. I live my life knowingly in the presence of God. My teaching is the fulfillment of the 12 tribes of the Jewish faith because Jesus, Aaron Reddy, is the bread of what? Life. So when he says purpose, this is a reminder that Jesus and his claims and his call to, to us is a fulfillment of the Jewish faith. And it's also a reminder we're called to live in the very presence of God and not live like the darkness he outlined last week in those 19 descriptions. He says, so you know my holy purpose, and, and also he says, you know my faith. You, you know how I've taught and walked between Jesus and the Father and the Spirit. And you know my patience, my ongoing enduring, and my love. All these virtues reflect what you need to keep on doing. It's actually what the author of Hebrews said in Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Well, Paul keeps going. He says, Timothy, you know all about that, but let's fill in the whole picture. Verse 11, you also know about my persecutions and my sufferings and what kind of things happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Now, Paul lists three cities from his very first missionary journey. We could all read them so quickly and move on as some boring uh, fact in history. But let's just all stop and listen to the terrifying, scary, terrible moments that actually really historically happened. It starts in Antioch in Acts 13.45, Paul's preaching with Barnabas. And it says, when the religious Jewish community saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. And they began to contradict Paul and what he was saying and started heaping abuse on him. And then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you first. And since you reject it and do not consider yourself worthy of eternal life, now we're going to turn to the non-Jews. Verse 48, when the non-Jews heard this, they were glad and honored uh, through the word of the Lord and all who were elected, called appointed to eternal life, they, they, they believed. Okay, that's Antioch. 
Well, then they leave, and then Iconium, Acts 14.4. Then the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, other with the apostles. And there was a plot afoot among non-Jews and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. Whoa. But they found out, and they fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe. So watch the progression. There's public shaming and verbal abuse. Cancel culture, 2,000 years ago. Then there was a plan to literally kill them, but they escaped. And then they arrive in Lystra. Now, why does this matter? This is Timothy's hometown. Timothy heard and knew about this story. So they arrive in Lystra and the violence and the shaming is acted on in Acts 14, 19. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won over the crowd and they stoned Paul and dragged him outside of the city thinking he was dead. Oh my goodness. Like they thought he was dead. That's how badly stoned, physical, dead. The disciples gathered around him, got him up, and went back in the city. So he wasn't dead, though he was pretty close. That's just round one. (laughs) If you keep reading Paul's stories, he was attacked or publicly uh, humiliated or insulted in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus, and Jerusalem. Paul was a living example. His words matched his life. Patience, endurance, steadfastness, not giving up. And then Paul says the weirdest thing, and yet, oh, oh, the Lord rescued me. And we're like, uh, no, he didn't. And he's like, oh no, he actually did. Paul puts this in here because he wants to create a right expectation. Now, you might not catch this. I didn't either. But Paul is actually quoting a verse from the Psalms. And it comes from the Greek version of the Old Testament. And it comes from Psalm 33, 18 and 19. The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, whose hope is in his unfailing love. Verse 19, here it is to deliver them, it's the same phrase, from death. So rescue does not mean no suffering. Rescue does not mean everything's okay. Rescue means not only the power to endure and keep on going, it says rescue means to make all things right in the end because ultimate rescue means deliverance from death. Now the psalm he chooses to quote has this huge theological river through it which is called, the theme in the Old Testament is called the righteous sufferer. In other words, many people who love God are going to suffer just because they love God, period. And that is why Paul is saying to Timothy and to us, we are called into righteous suffering. Oh, this isn't saying you got cancer because you loved God too much. Or no, no, no. This, isn't, this is talking about suffering for the faith. He says, but it's not just us, Timothy. And in this moment, Paul moves beyond us, uh, them, and speaks to all of us, every Christian and every generation from every background. In fact, verse 12, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Why don't you tweet that out? Why don't you put that on a bumper sticker? How How about you hashtag that on Instagram as God's promise for you to, a promise for you today. Being faithful Being boring and godly will bring persecution in small and large ways every single time. Suffering is not unusual, it's usual for the Christian. And when we live a godly life, there will be hostility from our own heart, the world, the flesh, and the devil. He says, look, the world's going to get worse. The vomit's going to get more. (laughs) Verse 13, evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And Paul's saying to Timothy, look, I know we've had so many ups and downs. 
I know things in the past where have been difficult. We just need to keep going. He says in verse 14, but, but as for you, continue in what you've learned have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. You, you've become convinced of this. Now, by the way, could everyone just take a look at the screen for a second? Or if you're listening to me and you don't see my face, can you just give a little bit more attention? He says, you're convinced of this truth. So he says, here's what he says. Would you just sit with it? Would you abide in it? Abide in it? Would you be satisfied in it? See, the world and false teachers are always looking for the newest, the next, the progressive better. The truth will feel boring, out of touch. Truth, we will be told again and again, especially in Canadian culture, is on the wrong side of history. He says, just be satisfied with the truth. He says in 2 Timothy 3.15, this truth, you've known it from infancy and you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Remember, we, we learned this story earlier. Timothy's mom and grandma, both Jewish nominally, both became Christians and led Timothy to Jesus and read him the Bible his whole life. But here's where the progression turns, and this is really significant. We begin in this verse to see one of the most significant things that the Bible does for us. So first, what does the Bible do? It shows people how to get saved. Now, the Holy Scripture makes you wise, intelligent for salvation. Now, reading the Bible doesn't save you. You don't get right relationship with God through just reading the Bible. But if you're a seeker here today, or a skeptic, or an atheist, or an agnostic, or you're deeply spiritual, or you're devoutly involved in another religion... When you read the Bible, it does two things for you. It shows you your true condition before the true God, your sinfulness, and shows you the way out. See, you'll never need a Savior if you think you're okay. The Ten Commandments, if you just read them, show us how much sin we're all in and how there's no person who, who's okay with God, no matter how they live, deeply religious, profoundly enlightened and spiritual, or just secular. None of us get out. This is why Paul wrote in, in Romans 3.20, Therefore, no one is declared righteous, okay with God, in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become aware, conscious of sin. Do you remember last week, Paul in detail outlined what we're all like? <laughs> the darkness. <laughs> 2 Timothy 3.2, people will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money and boastful and proud and, and abusive and disobedient to parents, and ungrateful, and unholy, and without love, and unforgiving, and slanderous, and without self-control, and brutal, and not lovers of the good, and treacherous, and rash, and conceited, and loving pleasure rather than lovers of God. Yep. See, this is why the Bible hurts, heals, and helps all at once. We're human beings. We, we are made in the image of God. Every human being on earth is so valuable because we're literally made in the image of our, our creator. But we're also sinful and we're broken. So the Bible comes and exposes us and declares us guilty because we are. But it doesn't just expose us. At the same time, it, it gives us hope. It gives us the answer. It gives us the way out. The Bible points us, makes us wise to salvation, points us to Jesus. The Bible shows us his life, his teaching, his claims, his atoning death, his powerful resurrection. See, the Bible at the end of the day is all about Jesus. Think about how blasphemous, how arrogant, how rude, how crazy this next thing I'm about to read to you is, if it's not true. But if it is true, it's life-giving. 
Jesus speaking to some of the best religious minds of his day about the Old Testament said in John 5.39, you study the Bible, the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify, Jesus says, about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. The Bible exposes our inability to connect with God, shows us how far we're in trouble, and shows us the way out. And the way out is only one name, one person, one door, one shepherd. His name is Jesus Christ. But see, the scriptures aren't just for those who have not yet crossed the line of faith, seeking skeptical, lost, or apathetic. God's holy word, the scriptures, the Bible, are for us also who are followers of Jesus. And we come to this famed verse. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching us, rebuking us, correcting us, and training us in righteousness. All scripture, (laughs) every text of scripture. Now, really important question. When Paul wrote this, what scriptures was he thinking about? Because the New Testament was not formed yet as we know it. Well, when Paul was writing this, it included everything from Genesis to Malachi, of course, the Old Testament. But it applies to the New Testament too. At this point, Peter was already referring to Paul's writing as scripture, which is shocking unless it's true. Second Peter 3.16, Peter write, uh, Paul writes the same way in his letters. Speaking in them on these matters, his letters, listen, contain some things that are hard to understand. Some of you are like, oh, Peter, I agree. And then he says, which ignorant and unstable people disorder, so they do with other scriptures to their own destruction. In other words, Paul's letters are equal to the Old Testament. Wow. At this point too, Matthew and Luke are quoting Mark. Mark is writing. Paul is quoting Luke. All of this is scripture and all scripture is God's words to us. Again, my favorite definition of the Bible comes from the great uh, English and then lived in Canada Anglican scholar, G.I. Packer. He said, Christianity is the true worship and service of the true God, humanity's creator and redeemer. It is a religion that rests on revelation. Nobody would know the truth about God or be able to relate to him in a personal way had not God first acted to make himself known. But God has so acted And the 66 books of the Bible, 39 written before Jesus came and 27 after, are together the record, the interpretation, the expression, and the embodiment of his self-disclosure. God and godliness are the Bible's uniting themes. See, that's why this next phrase is so important. All scripture is God-breathed. It comes from God. This is a statement about an origin. Who's the source? Who's the cause? Who's the beginning? Who's the starting point, uh, point of this book? God is. God is the author of the book. Now, don't confuse the process. It's not like Jeremiah or Moses or Paul were sitting there one day and suddenly their eyes rolled back, right? And they just started writing and woke up and went, oh, the book of Lamentations, amazing. No, no, we don't believe in dictation theory. See, what we see is so amazing in the Bible is God partners with human beings and uses their intellect and their literary ability. If you read Mark in the original language and Luke, you can tell who's the doctor and who isn't. <laughs> you see the limits and the strengths of their personality, but they partner together. But God has the final word. God inspires and brings truth. The Bible is trustworthy. It is truly by him. Now, this inspired book, which is unlike any other book on earth, is useful for us as Christians to rebuke and correct us. 
This is about our worldview. This is how we think and act. The Bible has to be the lens, has to be the glasses, right? That we actually see family through and life through and death through and money through and sex through and sexuality through and gender through and relationships through and power through and politics through and race through and economics through. And see, the more you sit under God's word, the more you listen to the written word of God, the more you will hear the word of God. And the more you submit to the word of God, the more each, each one of us will be taught and rebuked. And why do we need this? Because our thinking is tainted by sin. And our families are tainted by sin. And our, every culture, every ethnic group you come from or I come is also tainted in sin, just in different directions. Like I preached a few weeks ago, Paul is saying that the final authority is never our story. Whoa, in this culture? Really? Yep. It's never our experience. It's never our journey. It's not our cultural insight. It's not your pain or grief. It's not your personal rights. It's not your agenda. We all have an external authority. Every person in every culture needs to stand under God's word and God's word is going to affirm certain things in our life and other, declare other things neutral and other things will have to be torn down. But the Bible is not just there to rebuke. It's also to train us in righteousness. One person said righteousness just describes the observable Christian life, a life that's God-centered and a Bible-oriented life, just loves the scriptures and loves neighbor and loves Jesus. This is how another author, the author of Hebrews, described the nature of the Bible. In Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is alive and active. It's not a dead book. It's not Shakespeare. It's literally alive. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates, dividing soul, spirit, joint, marrow. It judges thoughts and attitudes of the heart. See, this is why the spiritual practice, like we found out earlier this year, of study matters so much to you personally and to your family and to this church and to this region and to this country and this world. Why? Because this is what Jesus taught. When you know the truth, the truth will set you what? Free. I've quoted this before. I want to do it again. Richard Foster, the great leader in spiritual formation, once said, good feelings will not free us. <laughs> Ecstatic experiences will not free us. Getting high on Jesus will not free us. Without a knowledge of truth, we will not be what? Free. <laughs> Calvin Miller said, mystics without study are only spiritual romantics who want relationship without the effort. Mic drop. In, in Paul's writing on spiritual conflict, what does he call the Bible? Ephesians 6.17, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, God has given us the Bible to convict us, to show our sin, to expose us to Jesus, and, and live a new conformed life. And he says this in verse 17, so the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. But we'll never be able to do all this good stuff unless we know the Scriptures. How do we love God and love our neighbor? Okay, you're like, all right. So what's the take home? Well, well, number one, let me just say this. Paul explicitly says that things are not going to get better. They're going to get worse. It's expectation setting. And he says, well, you're living through that reality, living through other people's decisions and cleaning up the mess. <laughs> Here's what you do to remain and to persevere. First, love the scriptures. Don't worship them, love them. Lo love the author more. But hear the scriptures, read the scriptures, sit under the scriptures, memorize the scriptures, meditate on the scriptures, understand the scriptures, 
live by the scriptures, say the scriptures, share the scriptures, sing the scriptures. Again, we only worship the author of the book, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, but we love and cherish his book. It's worth more than anything you own or could buy. You say, what's the take home this week? Go read the Bible. Number two, remain. Don't move. Hold fast. I know many of us in our honest moments aren't sure if being faithful to the ancient ways of God is worth it. And one of my favorite Psalms captures this. I've preached it before. Psalm 73, verse two. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They say, (laughs) how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. they always going on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. When I tried to understand all this, man, it troubled me deeply. Until I entered the sanctuary of God. Oh, then I understood the wicked's final destination. Surely you've placed them on slippery ground and you will cast them down to ruin. Hey, I'm preaching this for someone today. You about to walk away? Is, is doubt, which is okay, evolving now into jaded skepticism, not okay? Are you beginning to walk? Are you sitting or, or standing in sin? Have you out loud or quietly said, God is just wrong on this issue and I, I don't agree or the Bible is just wrong? Well, this is God speaking back to you in this moment. God is saying, my beloved child, what you're about to do will lead you to a place you cannot go. Love me as you once did. Do not envy. Do not look back or to the left or the right. Don't look to yourself or your culture. Its wisdom is is barren and broken and marred and tainted and will not ripple into eternity. It will not last. Look up and no love. (laughs) No holiness, no freedom that will last. Live under my word, my scriptures. God says to us, my son's return, Jesus' return, is going to make all things right. Remain and be faithful. His reward is better than anything you could sleep with, buy, own, or be exposed to. Truth is boring and not sexy sometimes, but it's truth. But here's the last thing, and I really want to camp here. Suffering for the gospel is normal. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Peter said the same thing. I've quoted this many times before. 1 Peter 2, 21, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Suffering is an average part of an average Christian life. Jesus' other half-brother, James, said it, consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, when you face uh, trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith develops for uh, perseverance. Now, I need to address this, and this is a moment where I would, again, beg attention. I take my glasses off. My sleeves are rolled up. Some of you understand. Okay. I've been noticing a pattern in the last six months, especially from those on social media in the Gen Z crowd, Gen Z, and a few millennials where I've been hearing them say, well, we don't experience persecution here in the West and we all need to stop whining. Just because someone disagrees with you, that's not persecution. Just look at our brothers and sisters. They, around the world, they know. Okay, what you're writing is right and wrong (laughs) all at once. Where are you right? Well, one out of eight Christians is under direct persecution. We all need to get this. 
That's 260 million Christians are living at this moment under direct persecution. They're being jailed. Uh, Many women are raped because they're Christian. The new thing that's happening in Islamic countries is forced marriages where they're actually taking girls and forcing them to be married and convert to Islam. This is recorded all around the world. Churches are being burnt down. You're not allowed to convert. In China at this moment, the government is rewriting parts of scripture to make it more Chinese. Persecution. During 2020, during this global pandemic, 9,488 churches or church buildings were attacked or burned down. And you might not know this, but in the last 11 months, 2,983 Christians have been murdered for being Christians. Murdered. Murdered. So that's persecution. Yes. But Open Doors, where I just got those stats, one of the best experts on living through persecution and religious freedom, here's their definition of persecution. Lean in, everyone. Persecution is any hostility experienced as a result of one's identification with Jesus. This can include hostile attitudes, words, and actions towards Christians. So when you declare that Jesus Christ is the only way and no other religion has the answer, when you say God is creator and has the final say on everything, including sexuality, when you choose not to lie and cheat and your boss has told you to lie and cheat, and because of that, you are actually not promoted in your business, or you're publicly shamed on the internet because you've taken a traditional view on marriage and or the exclusive claims of Christ. This also is persecution on a small scale. Now, this doesn't apply to your political views. Don't say, oh, I'm being persecuted because I support the liberal party. Please, sit down. When you're a jerk, in Jesus' name, doesn't count. This also doesn't count if you're doing bad things like, oh, I cheated on my taxes and I've got... No, no. If you sin, you get in trouble with the law. That's on you. But when you declare in humility, there's a heaven and a hell. When you gently declare that certainty and sincerity do not give eternal life and narrative and journey haven't had the final say, but Jesus does, when you stand up and you say abortion is murder, that the human being inside that woman's belly is an unborn human being and to take that life is taking life. When you say that uh, medically assisted suicide is murder and we have to defend the elderly, when you stand up for the widow and the orphan and the immigrant in Jesus' name and you are rejected or mocked, that is small seed persecution because you're doing it not politically, you're doing it because you follow Jesus. Now, let me say this even more, okay? I've preached this before. I want to say it again. As orthodox, (laughs) confessional, historic, biblically informed Christians, we should be bothering and making the political right and left angry all the time. And if you're not, you're probably not following Jesus close enough. Because we belong to another kingdom, from what I hear. So we are pro-life in Jesus' name and pro-immigrant in Jesus' name at the same time, which confuses everyone. We boldly declare that Jesus is the Son of God and the only way to heaven and there is no other door, and yet we will be the first ones to defend the civic right of anyone to say anything they want, including we're wrong. We will be called to a radical, holy sexual life that God defines, and we will say he has the final say, but we will resist and fight in any way violence and any form of assault, verbal or otherwise, against anyone of any sexual orientation in Jesus' name. And people go, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, of course it doesn't make sense because we're not from the left or the right. We're from Jesus. So most of us listening to this sermon aren't going to be beaten. I don't think this church building will be burned to the ground. 
But as Canadian culture is moving from apathy to hostility, as the scriptures bit by bit are called hate hate literature a little bit more, as the claims of Jesus in our faith, people sort of go, really, you believe that? Oh, it's okay. When it happens, when your boss or your friend or your family member or online attacks you, don't attack back. Don't hate that person. Pray for your enemy and rejoice. What did Jesus teach us in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 5.11, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely, notice, lie about you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets before you. We need to think about persecution on a sliding scale, from a real small P to a really big P. Not everything we experience because someone disagrees with us is persecution. Your view on vaccinations, side note, has nothing to do with Jesus. That's, no, no, no. But when you declare Jesus is the only way to heaven and someone says, I hate you because of that, ah, that is. So let's be honest when we're being persecuted and when we are, let's rejoice, not get angry. How do we continue to live through the dark time? Here's the one thing, love the scriptures. Love the scriptures. And by the way, if you want some easy tips to start understanding how to get into the scriptures, I preached this amazing sermon called The Spiritual Discipline of Study in a, two series ago. I think the pastors can put it up right now on the chat. You can go on and look. That will be really helpful. But love the scriptures. Number two, endure. Be good with boring truth. Just keep going. And number three, don't be shocked when you are persecuted. But when you are persecuted, rejoice. Because his reward is better than anything we could get down here. So a simple prayer I have, Lord Jesus, right now as we end. Number one, I pray for every person in Sanctus Church to have the courage to love Scripture, to love their neighbor, to love God, and to remain in the faith. I pray that there would be this deep sense of love and excitement because God has loved us first. For anyone who is about to sin or leave or compromise or has begun that process, I pray this would be a rescuing moment in Jesus' name. Some of you who are listening to me right now, you know God is speaking to you. God is giving you love. Come back, be open about your sin, repent, and become on fire for him in a way that you cannot imagine. And lastly, Lord, help us to endure persecution, love our enemies, not be jerks, not be angry, just be biblical. Help us to love each other and even love those who persecute us. Help us to endure well because Jesus says we will be blessed. I pray these things over Sanctus Church so we'd be, we will be more ready for the new thing you are planning to do in this church. In Jesus' name, and we all said to, together, amen. So glad that you joined us today. Can't wait to see you next week as we begin to wind down Paul's last words to Timothy and to every Christian that's ever lived. We'll see you next week. Amen, everyone. God bless you.